My name's Foxlip, Francis Foxlip. I was born in Stepney, East London, in the year of our Lord, 1813. My father, name of Frederick, was a sailor. Seems it runs in my blood, but I've no memory of him, because he was never seen again after my third birthday, so my mother said. Rumour was he'd deserted. America, some said. Others swore blind it was Australia. Whatever. It was left to me poor old mum to bring me up best she could. The first memory I have, must have been three or four, is of a smell. Walking through the door of my mother's brother, Uncle Silas's gaff. And the smell that hit me was of wood shavings, glue, varnish. He was a carpenter, see? And his house, it was more like a workshop than a home. The second memory I have is of a sound of his chisel as he fashioned away a joint on some table leg or some such. And while my mother and Uncle Silas nattered away, eating, drinking, she crying, him comforting her and him making her laugh with one of his naughty songs, I'd be in the corner with the little block of wood he'd given me and a scrap of sanding paper and I'd while away the evening smoothing it, stroking it, caressing it into some silky shape. I suppose Uncle Silas took the place of me good-for-nothing dad. He'd treat us. Big fan of the musical. It was my mum's 30th birthday, I must have been about 10, when Silas took us there and I loved it. The songs, the jokes, the acrobatics and again the smell of sawdust. <laughs> One skit in particular I remember. English sailors in a cooking pot about to be boiled by these savages, when suddenly the Navy arrives, blows the savages to smithereens, singing Rule Britannia. It's the first time I ever heard that tune, as Silas said. One of the finest ditties ever written. Thomas Arne, 1740. I was singing it for weeks after, apparently, and me just 10 years old. Rule Britannia, Britannia rules the waves. Britons never, never, never shall be slaves. <laughs> Good old Tommy Arn, eh? I was 12 when Uncle Silas takes me on as his apprentice and that's when I really began to learn the craft. Then a couple of years later a friend of his by the name of Wilfred Woods, yeah I know it sounds like I made it up but I didn't, he takes me on as his mate, carpenter's mate, only this time it's on a ship. Spent the first week at sea, throwing up, good and proper. But once I find my sea legs, I take to it like a duck to water. Working in our cramped little workshop down on the all-op deck, or up on the main deck, replacing rotten planks which have been gnawed away by rats. <laughs> Every ship's constant companions. It might surprise you, but quite tasty a rat can be. Delicately roasted. Or then again, Wilf sending me up the rigging to bind some canvas around a splintered yard arm and the view from up there, you feel like you're on top of the world, all around you stretching away as far as the eye can see, the endless blue of the ocean. Four years I spent with Wilf and I saw the Mediterranean, the West Indies. He'd gone as far as the Pacific on his travels and he had tales to tell about savages, cannibals, who ate human flesh, 
just like I'd seen made a lark of in the music hall. Only this was for real. Age 18 I am, when I next get back to London, and my mother's only gone and died, hasn't she, while I've been away. Uncle Silas takes me to the pauper's grave where she's buried, and before I set off to sea again, he gives me a present. One of his chisels. I say, what's this for? He says, because I probably won't see you again. Something ain't right in me guts. So take this chisel, and every time you use it, think of me. Sure enough, next time I come back to London, he snuffed it too. So that's it. I've no family left now. Rootless. I love England, but I now feel my home's out there. My life's out there. A life on the ocean wave. So I joined the Navy. I saw action in the Civilian War, 1840, and in Borneo, 1843, and it's in Borneo that Edward Polgrave, young Polgrave's father, first comes on the scene. He was serving on the ship with me there. He used to love it when I sang the songs I'd heard from the music halls back in London. Brought a smile to his face. Well-built man, Polgrave's father was. Strong as an ox, and he couldn't abide injustice. I get accused of stealing the purser's Bible. A purser, he's a bloke in charge of accounting for provisions and rations and that. I didn't steal it, but they found it rolled up in my hammock, so the evidence was pretty damning, weren't it? Twelve lashes. But I didn't steal it, I shouted. And Edward Polgrave, he's shouting too, he didn't steal it. Then who did ask a lieutenant? But you don't grasp. You don't snitch, not to an officer. Edward Polgrave certainly didn't. So I gets a dozen lashes, gritting my teeth all the while. I didn't blub. I ain't a blubber. And next day, Polgrave tells me who it was that did steal the purser's Bible. Well, my wounds are still pretty bad. So I'm just brooding on it, thinking what to do, when Polgrave only goes and confronts the thief, up on deck, huge fight, then Polgrave pushes the bastard down a ladder, he crashes down, cracks his skull, stone dead. Polgrave's court-martialed, found guilty of murder, he's got 24 hours, then he'll be hanged, wrapped in two hammocks and dumped in the sea. When I visit him that night, his last night on earth, he gives me a purse of money and tells me to get it to his missus and his little boy back in London, see that they're all right. And so, a few months later, when I get back to London, I break the news to Joanna, his missus, and young Polgrave, who's just six years old. And then, as is often the way with these things, before very long I've taken up with Joanna myself. And while me and her spend the evenings eating, drinking, and other things besides, young Polgrave sits in the corner with the little block of wood I've given him and a scrap of sanding paper. Just like me, all those years ago. 
before very long, I'm off to sea again. But I always come back to Joanna and young Palgrave. I teach him carpentry. And after a while, I find him work at the docks. Then, a few years later, I hear tell of the sweet Judy sailing to Australia and beyond in this year of our Lord, 1861. On recent voyages, I've heard about these Australian gold mines and I'm thinking, I want some of that. I'd like that, strike lucky, feather me nest, maybe plant my feet firmly on dry land for once and for all. And the sweet Judy needs a carpenter and a carpenter's mate. And so I badger young Polgrave, I go on and on at him to join me till I can tell he's fed up to the back teeth hearing about it. Come on, I say to him, maybe we'll strike lucky and find ourselves some gold. How does that take your fancy? He don't say nothing to that. But whatever, something makes up his mind to join me. And I'm glad. I'm really glad. I've never married, never had any children. Well, I might have had, might have had quite a few actually, but I've never met any of them, know what I mean? <laughs> but young Polgrave, I suppose he's like a son to me, for sure. Because of how his father stood up for me, Polgrave's the only one I feel any loyalty or affection towards in this whole wide world. Apart from England, of course. England. So, here I am, 48 years of age, about to set sail again in my mind, possibly for the last time. The chisel Uncle Silas gave me all those years ago is now in a toolbox on board the Sweet Judy. It pains me to think I might never see London town again, but I do fancy some of that gold, that Australian gold. And who knows, I might even run into me old man over there. That'd be handy, because there's a few things I'd like to say to him. <laughs> <laughs>